Blog Talk Radio.
Back to the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, IBM TV, and other uh, media outlets as we continue to grow and grow and grow. I'm LA Bachelor. Thank you for joining us. Wherever you are, you didn't have to, but you decided to be a part of this broadcast, and we certainly appreciate you doing so. You can reach us at 646 929 or on a Facebook at Pad Nation, uh, Pad Nation 2 at Twitter, Instagram. In fact, you can ask questions on uh, Facebook or on Twitter if you want. The chat room is open. Big ups to uh, Double G in there. Check us out. We appreciate you, man. want to go to the phones, bring in my guest. Of course, he is the play-by-play voice for UMass Lowell Basketball. Does a fine job. And, of course, uh, of Anastas Media, his media outlet. He is Nick Anastas. And Nick, what's shaking, man? Everything good? Good, LA. How are you? Good, man. Trying to fight these allergies and everything else is going on. Uh, so do bear with me. Uh, I want to start with the NBA. Before I kind of get to the Celtics, question um, about this playing game or playing tournament that they're going to have, and uh, uh, certainly it's going to be, you know, if the the playoffs started now, you see the teams that would be in there uh, from um, 8 to 10, or 7 to 10, I should say. Um, But what's your thoughts about it? I know a lot of people feel like maybe this is more incentive for some of the franchises that uh, usually tank or would tank maybe to get in that NBA lottery uh, draft and get a high draft, but but what say you with this format? I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Number one, it rewards mediocrity. Okay, if the play-in tournament was today, how many play-in teams do you have? Eight on both sides. Only one of those eight, excuse me, two of those eight is above five hundred. So six of the eight. Teams in the play-in tournament are well below 500 and have no business being in the playoffs, whether it's a one-and-done play-in round situation or not. Uh, I think it cheapens the regular season, it rewards mediocrity, and it punishes a team like the L.A. Lakers who are 10 games above 500 and should automatically be in the top eight in the West. Instead, they're going to have, you know, to fight their way in against, you know, a team that – probably shouldn't deserve to be there. So I don't like it. I I think it's kind of a panic move by the league, uh, seeing that this format came kind of out of nowhere. There was no real uh, debate. There was no real discussion about it. It just was kind of, you know, thought up seemingly out of the blue one day, and and here it is. So I I don't know. To me, it it seems like the the NBA is trying to react, um, you know, to their low ratings. it's not been a good year, ratings-wise. They're they're looking for something uh, to grab, I think, the, the public's attention at large going into the playoffs, and this is an idea to do that, a potential way to uh, increase the ratings a little bit. But, but as far as um, the tournament itself goes, the playoff itself goes, uh, you know, it, it doesn't do much for me. 
Same thing, you know, with the first uh, the first four, so to speak, in the NCAA tournament. About ten years ago, they moved the or expanded the field from 64 to 68. You know, a money grab, a ratings grab. Um, that you know, ultimately, I don't think moved the needle one way or the other. Same thing here. I, I don't think this does much for fans. Maybe, you know, definitely not much for fans outside of the fan bases of those teams that are in the play-in. I think it's good for those fans, maybe. But overall, I think it rewards mediocrity. It gives a shot to teams that really have no business being there. Six of the eight are, are below 500. You know, that, that, that's not attractive to me. What do you say to those who say, listen, um, baseball did it, albeit because of COVID and, and changed format and, uh, baseball was uh, the the playoffs were pretty exciting, and then uh, for those who say, well, you know, the Lakers want to not be in that play-in tournament, they need to win more games. They won forty out of seventy. Uh, you know, same thing with the Warriors. They're going to have to play each other. If, if the thing started right now, the Warriors are the only other team in the play-in with an above five hundred record. So you're punishing both the Lakers and the Warriors and rewarding the other six teams, which are well below 500. So, you know, sure, I guess. But, but again, why do you have the regular season? Why is it important to win games throughout the regular year as you try to jockey for playoff positioning, as you try to jockey in? You know, making the playoffs used to be a big deal. And I don't like it necessarily in baseball either. I've never been about the second wild card. You know, the first one, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, it seems like eight teams total and, and you know, makes makes sense. Um, but same thing, you know, the, the Atlanta Braves uh, six, seven years ago got punished. They, had, they, they finished six games, six full games, better than their opponent in that playing round. No business being there, match up with them in a do or die. They lose, their season's over. So, and so I don't know, I, I, again, to me it just rewards mediocrity and at the same time devalues the regular season process. You know, the end of the regular season, okay, you want excitement if your team's on the bubble. If your team's a 7 or 8 or a 9, even a 10 seed or whatever, you know, on the outside looking in, then those last three or four regular season games mean something. So you already had excitement baked into the end of the regular season schedule anyway. So, again, to me this is just a ratings grab, a way for the league to make money, uh, I don't think it's going to work, frankly. Um, but but maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just stubborn, you know, getting old at this point. But <laughs> but I, I don't know. To me, well, I, I don't know, think it was wrong. Yeah, I was going to say it's for me. It's a wait and see. I don't know. There's some pros and cons to it. To, to uh, definitely get your points on it. Um, but you know, NFL hasn't figured out how. You know, look at the Cowboys last year or Washington. Right, it was Washington won. Washington, um, yeah. they won their division, uh, eight and eight or whatever yeah. it was, or seventy nine, whatever. But we've seen that in the past. Um, and then the flip side of that is we've seen teams, you know, go, you know, Denver way back with Montembeau, you know, knocking off a one seed and stuff. These things do happen. I'm not saying it's right. I, I'm still on a wait and see type of thing, um, but. Like I said, for me, it's some pros and cons to to both of it. Whether it works or not, I don't know. I think part of it, you know, whether it depends on if it quote-unquote works or not, is going to be if LeBron plays. 
Um, what, what is the latest with that, L.A.? Is he is he going to play in that plan? I guess. I mean, if it, that's what they're saying, but it's, you know, listen, if he if he can get out there and, and do it, you know Grom's going to play. Um, but I haven't right. heard uh, any updates on it. Right. So I, I think I think in the end, it push comes to shove, he's probably going to play. Uh, I, I can't see a scenario where his team season's on the line and he's borderline ready to go where he sits out. So I would expect him to play. I would expect probably uh, the ratings to get a bump there, given the Lakers are in it, given they're in a do-or-die spot, given they've got uh, LeBron James, their, their face, the face of the league in that game. It probably will. Uh, help the ratings in that regard, but, but again, I, I just don't think this is necessary. I, I, I don't. I mean, that's that's my personal opinion. You're right. I'll, I'll take the wait and see approach. I think that's probably wiser. So we'll see. I'll uh, I'll definitely be tuning in. Talking with Nick Anastas here on the Best News Radio Show on the Best News Radio Network, WCON and IBM TV. Um, Nick, with in regards to this Celtic team. You know, look, you've been talking about this team being this dysfunctional in a way that they just don't seem to that never really kind of blended and kind of got it together um, at any point this year. Uh, if they they look good offensively, then they would look bad defensively. They haven't been ha- having a lot of consistency um, from some of their, their top guys. Um, and, and it's just been one thing out of another. A lot of pointing fingers I've seen uh, across, you know, news lines. I don't know what they're saying in Boston in terms of the fans overall. But it first assess, you know, them against Charlotte, right? Uh, they, they pretty much got the same record. Um, and, you know, if this is a die in a do-or-die situation and they die – is it going to be even worse ramifications and consequences and consequences and, and fallout because they're in this position and not in this quote unquote regular seating? Yeah, I, I think all of a sudden, and we've talked about this before, but but I'm starting to reevaluate my position. Brad Stevens may be in trouble after all. Um, you know, at the beginning of this season, I thought he was untouchable. I thought he had a good enough resume where no matter how things turned out this year, he would be okay going into next year. I'm not convinced that's the case anymore. I think the, the, the fan base is starting to lose patience. It's obviously everybody's disappointing with, with the way this thing has gone down. And, and forget the wins and losses, just the fact that, that they've been so hard to figure out what's wrong is really the maddening part of it. You know, they look night and day. I was looking at some of the splits uh, before you called. Wins versus losses. They're averaging over 119, 120 points during the wins. They're shooting nearly 50%. They're shooting over 40% from three-point land. Um, you know, we, we've seen that they've got three guys really on the roster that can, that can score 40-plus. I mean, Kemba scored 36 the other night in a loss. So when they're clicking, the offensive firepower is there and it's evident. In the losses, however, the numbers are almost night and day different. They're, they're below 106, down to 105 and change in those losses, again, compared to 120 when they win, 
their field goal percentage is around 40% when they lose as opposed to 49 when they win. Um, they haven't rebounded well, period. They haven't moved the ball well, period. And defensively, it's, it's almost as black and white as the offense, um, you know, where they're just surrendering points. They try to get in track meets with teams. Um, you know, I, I think they still like to play fast, but at times, um, seemingly when the transition is working, they'll go ahead and slow it down again. So, uh, you know, everybody's trying to take a stab at trying to diagnose this thing. Everybody's got their own two cents with what's wrong, but, but nobody knows. <laughs> and, and that, I think, is what's different this year when you compare struggling teams of, you know, of, of yesteryear or whatever. Um, you know, at, at least in 2014 when they were at the bottom, you know, bottom feeders vying for a, a, a draft slot, you know, you knew it was going to be a, a garbage year. Team Tank was the nickname. You know, you knew that the roster just didn't have enough talent. That's not the case here. I, I mean, this team still on paper, I believe, is a top three or four team in the East. Um, they, are, they are not playing well. They're, they're playing, you know, they're not playing well at the wrong time. They've lost, what, four in a row um, heading into the playoffs, heading into the play-in round. That, that's not a good sign, but... But, again, I think nobody's safe up here anymore. That includes Brad Stevens. That includes basically everybody outside of Tatum and Brown on the roster. I think it will be an interesting offseason. Now, we'll see. I mean, maybe they are good enough where playoffs roll around. They tighten, you know, tighten things up defensively. They go out and get after it. They move the basketball. They put up 120 points, 121, and they go out and win, you know, and get hot. All that, I think, is still on the table. In a week east, I mean, if they beat Charlotte, they're going to have to play Brooklyn. <laughs> so, you know, all, all bets are off there. But, uh, I, I mean, the way this thing has gone to this point, it, it's, it's really been a nightmare season because it's been so hard to put your finger on what exactly is wrong with this team. Mm. Uh, uh, Norris 19, Gary uh, says, go New York, go New York, go in the playoffs. And it's been an exciting year for them. Uh, I mean, you, you know, at this point, part of the year, usually the fans and the media there are talking about who they're going to get in the draft and where they're going to get the draft. So uh, it's been a, a, a definitely a, a nice turnaround for them uh, and a, a good story. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with Boston. If they get hot, um, I agree. They, I think they could beat anybody. Um, I don't see it in terms of them doing it, but they certainly are capable uh, yep. of getting it done, but we'll see what happens. You, speaking of turnarounds, as we we transition to Major League Baseball, I mean, the last time we talked, even before the season started, and it's only 40 games in, or whatever the case may be, we know it's a long season, uh, but, you know, nobody expected... Um, Boston to do the things they do. Now, they've lost three in a row, but they're still a game up in first. What would you attest of them getting off to the start? They lost. They got swept by the Orioles to start the year. Then they went on the streak. They've come down to uh, earth a little bit now, but what's been it? Because, I mean, if you look at their point differential, it's, it's, it's the highest, uh, certainly in the uh, AL East, but to me, it's the pitching. The pitching has actually been better than I expected. Your thoughts? I agree. I think the pitching has been better. 
The rotation has been better. The bullpen has been better than what we thought. Now, pitching is up league-wide, major league-wide, right? I mean, hitting hitting has really gotten off to a slow start across both the hitters already. Right, exactly. You take a look at team average, uh, you know, all the metrics are pointing in the wrong direction if you're a hitter. We'll put it that way. So I'm not sure what that is. Um, you know, there's a couple different theories we could get into, but as far as the Red Sox are concerned, sure, 162 runs given up, uh, which is which is kind of in line with, with the rest of the league and the rest of the division. Um, the Yankees have, have really had a, a strength with their pitching. But, uh, you know, we, we talked about this before the season started. I felt like that lineup was still good enough to produce runs. And sure enough, they've scored more runs than anybody in the American League, and that includes Houston and the White Sox. So they've got J.D. Martinez seemingly back to his, you know, pre-COVID form. Um, The league has allowed him to kind of check his at-bats on the tablet in the dugout. That was one thing they had taken away from him after uh, after the Alex Cora scandal, so to speak. Um... Obviously, Cora's been reinstated. So has the um, so has the the tablet. You, you know, I don't want to put too much into it, but it seems like again he's been able to correct his mistakes in real time, and he's been a much better hitter, hitter for it. The middle of that order is now solidified. Meanwhile, Verdugo, who came over in the Mookie Betts trade, has been outstanding offensively and defensively in the outfield. So they've gotten pop up and down that lineup, which, again, we, we, we both predicted. You know, we, we, you and I thought they would score runs. They have. Um, combine that with the fact that their pitching has been better than expected, and there you go. They're 22-16 and 16 despite the three-game losing streak. We'll see. That, that's still uh, potentially, you know, the top of that division is as good as there is in baseball. Um, it, it's going to be a, you know, a five-, six-month test, but so far so good uh, for the Red Sox. Yeah, we'll kind of judge these these teams after the All-Star break, the dog days, they call it, right? Um, right. But given their success um, on the road, they've struggled at home. Why is that? And then, you know, if you look at the division top to bottom, even the Orioles have played some good baseball. They're only five games under right now. Uh, are you surprised so early that all the teams have kind of, you know, kind of had their spurts? And really in baseball, they have their spurts where they're doing well. I, I, I was thinking if, if the Orioles go 81 and 81 this year, Kobe um, contingent, but uh, if, if they go 81 and 81 or 80 and 82, 78 and something or other, uh, that would be their World Series in itself. But assess the AL East thus far overall. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't count on Baltimore sustaining much. They've lost now what seven of their last ten after that hot start. They're now five games below. They're in the basement. Uh, I just don't see it. And I like the Orioles. You know, traditionally it's good when they're good, but I, I, I just don't see it this year. Tampa, as we know. Um, Never looked sexy on paper. They've never got a star. They've never got a high payroll. But they just continue to get it done. 
slowly but surely. Right now, you know, they're 500, kind of, again, flying below the, the radar, but they're winning games on the road. Um, so, so I expect them to be in that wild card hunt for sure. Uh, Toronto, as we know, again, a team that's going to score a ton of runs. The question is with that pitching, so far so good. Uh, they're beating teams that are above 500. They're winning games on the road. They're winning games at home. They're starting to figure it out. They've won three in a row. And then, yeah, the, the Yankees are going to be there too, as you know, uh, you know, just loaded on paper. Uh, again, I think another good off season. Uh, we'll see if Kluber can hold up. I think he may be kind of um, kind of a wild card, dark horse, so to speak. Where if he's pitching well, then that line, along with uh, Jamison Talion, if those two veterans can can put together a, a healthy, productive season, that makes them very tough. Uh, and we're starting to see that, you know, in glimpses so far. Uh, but baseball is a streaky sport. You know, teams are going to lose three or four in a row, then they're going to win, you know, five out of six, six out of seven. And, you know, that's why the regular season uh, in baseball is, you know, as important as any regular season. I think it's different because it's so long. It's such a grind. The rosters are huge. you got guys coming up and down all the time from the minor leagues. Um, you know, that part of the game is, is fun. And that, that's one of baseball's, I think, strengths. Um you know, especially in a diverse year where there's a lot of parity in all three of the divisions in both leagues. So it seems like, you know, on all those fronts, um, you know, Major League Baseball has gotten off to an ideal start in that regard when you take a look at the standings in both leagues. Who's your surprise team thus far that you like, wow, they got off to a pretty good start. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, obviously, uh, you look at Oakland and Houston, it, you expect them to, to do well. I've been on the White Sox. They finally kind of look like they're about something, but I've been on them for two years. Um, but who do you think, at least in the American League, are some of your surprises? In the American League, I was going to give you a National League team. But in the American League, uh, Seattle, Yeah, I, I, and they're probably yeah. coming back down to earth. I get it. They've lost four in a row. They've lost seven out of ten. Um, but they got off to a hot start, as hot as anybody, and, and I figured they'd be dead last, frankly, in the AL West. Uh, you mentioned the, the White Sox. They've been ready to bud for a couple of years now. So, right. you know, they're, they're not going to go anywhere. They, they were the sexy pick a couple of years ago. I think you and I both agreed that that it was too early, but, but I think 2021 is about right for them. Uh, Cleveland, you know, under Francona, still – He's still a great manager, in my opinion. I think a lot of the Sox fans will, will agree. They're still kicking themselves for letting him go. Uh, but, you know, Cleveland's not, not – they're going to be a contender. Um, so, I don't know. Outside of that, I mean, Oakland, I guess, again, small budget, but similar to Tampa, find ways to hang around, find ways to get it done. And there are eight games above 500 right now in first place in the West. So maybe it's the Oakland A's. I mean, you know, maybe Seattle, one of those Western teams. I mean, even Texas, the fact that they're only two games under, I think for them is a victory. But May is always the big month. May is always when things start to get real and the cream starts to rise to the top. April is kind of like the NFL in September. It's a mirage. You see things one week, they're totally different the next. The standings are a little askew, you know, after a month of play. That second month, whether it's October in the NFL, 
or May in Major League Baseball is when I think the real contenders start to rise in the standings. Yeah, and this quickly out west, uh, listen, the Dodgers have had all kinds of issues. They get a, a huge injury, um, and um, their, their bullpen has been tapped. And then, ironically, their issue, the Giants, again, a, a team you figured has been would be dead at the top of the list right now so far. You know, the Cardinals are the team that everybody kind of expected is theirs to lose. And then, you know, it's a toss-up for me. I still like Atlanta and, and the East. Uh, and that division, what, what do you say, um, out I mean, in the National League? Well, my, my surprise team overall is going to be the Mets. I mean, they've now seven straight, eight their last ten, and they're five games above 500. Now, I know with that New York payroll – the Mets should be in, in competition every year. But due to, I think, organizational incompetence in the past, you know, they find ways to finish fourth or fifth. But maybe this is the year where, you know, they string it together like 2015 when they went all the way to the World Series um, and defy expectations. Maybe. We'll see. I, I still, uh, you know, am hesitant to endorse the Mets because they've burned New York and everybody else so many times. Uh, you're right. Atlanta's still my pick in that division as well. I think Miami is a little bit better than people give them credit for. Uh, Washington, I, I, I still am kind of scratching my head there. They should be better than their record. Philly is solid. Um, St. Louis has always really been the standard of that division, in my opinion, uh, just because they quietly seem to get it done year in and year out. We've talked about them in the past. Uh, the fact they're 23 and 15 in first place does not surprise me at all. Uh, kudos to Cincinnati. You know, they've been down for so many years. Pretty good start there at 17 and 17. Uh, the Cubs will keep an eye on them. Pittsburgh doesn't seem like it's their year. And then the Giants, you got to respect as well. they got a good front office. They seem to maximize the roster every year. They seem to get the most bang for their buck every year. If they do get into the playoffs, their pitching usually rises to the occasion. So there's somebody to keep an eye on, but but I'm not sure they have on paper what it takes to compete with a healthy L.A. Dodgers or a healthy San Diego. I think uh, ultimately it'll be those two with, with San Francisco probably playing for third in the NL West. But, but again, a good start for the Giants, and you've got to give credit to that team and that organization. Yeah, and, you know, uh, to your point, um, they're doing it without that another great manager not being Bruce Bochy yet, who, of course, is uh, no longer the manager retired. Um, but they they continue to, to to do well. Like I said, uh, so far, uh, someone in the chat room said that um, Degrom has to stay healthy uh, for the Mets to win. He's a Mets fan. I totally agree with that. And uh, T-Mac and I were talking about it. Maybe they need to just kind of shut him down a little bit um, because the injuries keep coming and they need him. You know, maybe they need to do what some of these NBA players are doing, you know, taking some games off and doing that kind of thing, especially with a guy like him who's injury prone. Uh, if this is the year for the Mets to get it done. So uh, we'll see. Nick, before you go, one final question is uh, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, speaking of the Cardinals, 
Justin mentioned the angels. Um, the way the angels let Albert Pujols go. I don't know all the details. We don't know all the inside and all that stuff that went on, why he was designated for assignment. We know what that means. But just like St. Louis kind of, you know, build up their, I mean, they've always been good. We know the, you know, the Coleman's and the, you know, Ozzy Smith and all those guys back in the day. But, you know, Albert really kind of kept them going in terms of the fan base and, and all of that. And certainly, uh, you know, he's a Hall of Famer. Then he gets to the Angels, and of course he's not a, the same guy in terms of his play, but he still can produce. But even if he's not producing, can you not go to the guy and say, can, you know, is, is you're really struggling? You know, can we set up something where we can allow you to gracefully retire or walk away from the game for this year or something uh, along those lines? There's certain guys that, you know, Ownership and franchises don't have to, and we see it's a, a dirty business. They'll cut you in a minute or trade you or you know, throw you under the bus, look at Tom Brady now in Tampa and all that kind of stuff. Certain guys should have the right to move on the way they want, and he's one. So what do you think about how they they handle Albert Pujols in this, this case? Because I am not an Angel fan. I never was, but I'm certainly not going to be rooting for him anytime soon. All right, let me just play devil's advocate for a second. How do we know that that conversation did not happen? How do we know that the Angels did that, that, That's a great point. But, but, you know, but, you know as, the, as the owners, but, at, but I was going to say, as ownership, don't you look at the optics? When you put a press release out there, hey, we offered him this, he turned it down. None of that's out there. Right. That's a good point. At least from a CYA perspective, a press release would have accomplished that. But, but my point being was, let's say the player says no. Let's say the player says, I've got more to, more to give. I don't want to leave my teammates, you know, whatever answer it is. But the bottom line is, no, you're, you know, I'm not going to step away willingly. So then what do you do if you're the owner or the management? I mean, pools, again, Hall of Famer, sure. The numbers, though, horrendous. 24 games below 200. Uh, an ops of below 600, which is flat out unacceptable. Um, you know, he's been in the major leagues for 41 years, uh, excuse me, 21 years. Um, you know, at some point, you got to say goodbye. And if a player is too stubborn to realize that, then what do you do? You know, again, at the end of the day, if a GM's job is going to be on the line, it's going to be the GM who's going to say, okay, you're gone. So, so I don't know, you know, to your point, from a public relations standpoint, this is a loss for the Angels, no question. This does not, you know, make them look good. But at the same time, if, and I say if, based on pure speculation, if Pujols was kind of holding them hostage or trying to call their bluff, then what recourse do they really have? I mean, do you continue to trot the guy out there uh, knowing that, he's, that he can't hit anymore, that's hurting their team? You know, that ultimately is going to cost other guys jobs? Or or are you going to deny, you know, the upper-comer in the minor leagues that that has fought his career to get that spot in the majors that now is being held by a guy who doesn't deserve to be there? So, I mean, it's all been based on merit. 
It's all been made to the point where Pujols was the best. He got the most money. Now that he's not, you've got to kind of, in my opinion, abide by the same rules as everybody else, where if you can't cut it and don't deserve to be on the team and you don't want to walk away gracefully, well, then maybe you're, he was tying the owner's hands a little bit. I don't know the details, pure speculation, but um, to back up the ownership a little bit, at the end of the day, it is still a business. And he'll get his time in the sun, L.A. The Cardinals and the Angels will both honor him. They'll both retire his number. They'll both throw him a parade, build him a statue, whatever they'll be. There won't be any hard feelings, you know, a couple of years from now when that happens. We've seen well, all I, the Seen Hall of Famers get cut yeah. before and then honored by their teams later on. Right. Um, and I, I get it. And it. Like you said, it is speculation. I don't know. People said it could be raised. No, the ownership of uh, the owner of the team is, is uh, Latino descent. Um, so certainly I'm sure they have a lot of, uh, of things in common and bonding and everything else culturally. So I, I don't think that. But uh, again, Nobody told Michael Jordan not to go make a fool out of himself at Washington Wizards. I mean, he did it. Somebody probably told him, but he kept playing. Jordan was dropping over 20 a game, L.A., with the Wizards. Come on. Jordan was, come on. No. Come on. Nick, really? Look at the numbers. He was dropping over 20 a game to the Wizards at 41 years old. Who else can't hit 200 Jordan at make, Did Jordan make the Wizards? Come on. Did Jordan make the Wizards a playoff team? Did they, did they dominate when he was there? He was a shadow of himself is my point. And I'm not saying, again, ownership didn't go. I, no, I, no, no. Jordan was, was not one of those guys. Nobody feared Jordan when he got to Washington. I mean, everybody was crossing him over there. I mean, he wasn't a defensive player. He wasn't, he was a shadow I mean, you're talking about Jordan from the Bulls to the Wizards. I mean, there's no comparison. It's not. But, again, my point is when they when they decline, when they're iconic, famous walking in the door, in some cases at least, and, again, we don't know if they had that conversation or not. If the if owner said, listen, you know, we, you know, and Mike Trout was upset about it, by, by the way. Mike Trout was very upset about it, according to reports. But you know, I, I get your point. I'm not. I'm not denying saying. I mean, because I started off by saying, at the end of the day, they own the team, and we've seen Hall of Famers get cut all the time. I, I prefaced that with the beginning. I'm just saying, in some cases, it's just a little uh, a different. Uh, so thank you, Nick. We appreciate you uh, coming on. As always, Nick Anastas for Anastas Media, play-by-play voice for UMass Lowell on the Best News Radio Show and the Best News Radio Network, WCOM, and the Chapel Hill and IBM TV. This is Chicago-style hot dog here. I'm not feeling too good. Turns out, along with all the other bad things my cholesterol does, they say it's a risk factor for strokes. Strokes? Sheesh! Good news from National Stroke Association. Exercising, eating right, and asking your doctor about medicines that can help lower your cholesterol, like statins, may reduce the risk of a first stroke. And if you've already had a stroke, it's even more important you lower your cholesterol. 
Lower your chances of stroke by controlling your cholesterol. Visit stroke.org today. Welcome back to the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Network, WCOM in Chapel Hill, IBMCV, StreamYard. Follow us on Facebook at Pat Nation, Pat Nation through Twitter, LA Bachelor Instagram. If you miss any part of the broadcast, go to our website, uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network.com, the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. I want to go to the phones, bring in my guests. Patiently waiting on the line. Uh, man, how many outlets this guy has? My next guest, of course, the Nashville Voice, SportsWigginning.com, AFC South Roundup, and a partridge in a pear tree. He is uh, Mike Patton. And Mike, uh, always a pleasure to have you on, my young brother. Thanks for having me on again. Um, so Albert Pujols, the way it was handled, what, what's your thoughts with the angels and how it was handled? And, and again, this, this understanding that, you know, can we show a little bit of class if, and I'm saying if, I don't know all the stories, if they didn't have that conversation and they just cut them without any kind of, you know, conversation, uh, on either part. Honestly, uh, yeah, well, if they definitely cut him and just boom, bam, cut him, you know, that, that you know, it's, it doesn't, you know, bode very well for the management and doesn't look very well. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, they should have mentioned, you should have, uh, you know, said, hey, you know, we try to work something out. Unfortunately, I have to work something out, and this is the result uh, or something like that. But just the way they did it right. just out, out of left field, it was kind of interesting, and to me, I don't necessarily like it if that's the case. They basically didn't, you know, didn't speak to him. Didn't he didn't ask to be cut or anything of that nature? Definitely. Yeah, uh, and you know, I mean, the guys have, um, you know, it, it's a cutthroat business. We know, um, and any business. Sometimes they make tough decisions that people don't like, and I get that. It's just that, you know, until something comes out, and I'm sure it will eventually. It just it didn't didn't fit didn't sit well with me the way way it went down. I want to touch on the NBA real quick story about Kareem getting this social justice award um, that will be presented. You know, and you know, Kareem, we're both. Uh, well, well I was, I wasn't, neither one of us were born, let's, let's just say, in the 60s with Kareem and Jim Brown and Ali and um, Bill Russell doing all the socially conscious work that they put in. And Kareem has done it over decades, not to mention, Mike, as you know, three-time champion at UCLA, multiple champion, Bucks, Lakers, MVP, he's got, I think, six the most in the league in history and all the points he scored, all the all-star games. So it, it, he's a winner, and he did the right thing, sort of like LeBron, sort of like to a poor man's degree of Kyle Kaepernick, trying to do the right thing, made to Super Bowl, that kind of thing. 
don't you think it's sort of hypocritical, though, of the NBA, like Patrick Ewing, the rumors, and you're around the NBA, you know, um, that he never got a chance to coach in this league, Kareem. You know, you want to honor to do it, and I get it. He should be honored for this because of what he's done over the years and continues to do. But never been a coach, not assistant coach. The only coaching I know of that um, I remember reading about was he coached on a Indian um, reservation. You know, so right. I think it's a, it's a little hypocr- hypocritical to give him this award, but yet owners, not saying – the commissioner's office, the owners have this, like Colin Kaepernick, has this unsort of written ban for him as a head coach or even assistant coach. Well, I'll say this. He actually was an assistant coach for the Lakers at one point, actually coaching Andrew Bynum. So at one point, he actually was an assistant coach with the Lakers. Right, um, he was, but, but he was, a, he was developing, de- developing Bynum, <laughs> sort of like uh, Elijah right. did yeah. with some guy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like his personal coach, pretty much. But um, one thing I will say is not necessarily against um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but, uh, you know, Patrick Ewing and a lot of other big men in the NBA. You notice that there are never really any big men that are actually uh, head coaches in the NBA. Point. Not at all. There's not very many. And, and so that's why guards, I think it's more it's of a, guards, of a it's nothing but guarding things. <laughs> right. Right, if you're a guard, the biggest best you can be is a forward. I mean, you have a Dan Cowan that wasn't a forward; he was a center. But other than that, you have a lot of people that were guards and forwards that are being head coaches. And for some reason, centers are not getting that type of love, especially in the NBA. So that's why I think more of it is, as opposed to actually being um, him not getting the shot because of you know other things going on. Um, because you know, just for some reason. NBA teams do not value big men being head coaches, which I, I have no idea why. I can't explain it, and it just it, it just it's, it's frustrating to, to watch and, and hear people try to explain. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm glad that he got the award, and he definitely uh, embodies a lot of things that, that that people are fighting for social change embody. And he definitely was one of the forefathers of that movement, along with the Jim Brown and Bill Russell and many countless others. Yeah, of course, Bill Russell was a, a coach, but I think, he, I mean, so much success and, and Red loved him so much, he pushed for him to be that player coach uh, with with the Celtics when when he eventually uh, retired. Let, let's look at the this playing game format. Um, a lot of pros and cons, a lot of for and against I'm hearing uh, about it. Um, some people say, hey, this will stop, like uh, uh, Gary in the chat room said, this will stop teams from tanking uh, in a lot of ways. They're, they'll have to play and they won't have to tank to, to or won't tank to get into the, you know, the NBA lottery and then ha- a high draft pick. Uh, and this is like sort of like, hey, you don't want to be in this play-in tournament, then win more games. That's that's that side of it. The other side of it is like uh, it penalizes teams that have really good records that actually play in it, and glaringly it's the Lakers and, and Golden State, both 
several games over 500, seven and 10, I think, respectively, uh, over 500 to have to go in this. The East is a little bit different, obviously. Um, but what say you in this? I mean, baseball did it, uh, COVID-related, of course. They had to, um, to, to do it like that. Uh, but what do you think about this? How successful do you think it'll be? Honestly, taking a look at it, uh, you know, I think it's more of uh, trying to bring more attention and bring more money into the pockets of the owners. That's what this is, in my opinion. Um, you know, of course, you can talk about how these other teams will have the chance and things like that, but if a team wants to tank, it's going to find a way to tank. It's just simply put how it's going to be. Look at the Houston Rockets. They definitely found a way to trade all the pieces and tank as hard as they possibly could to 16 wins. So, you know, definitely, um, you know, it, it may have some, you know, merit in some aspects, but other aspects it doesn't. And a team that it, it punishes, not necessarily the the Lakers or the Warriors, I'm going to point out the Charlotte Hornets because the Charlotte Hornets have been battle injuries all season long, have overachieved and made the playoffs uh, as well. But now they technically haven't made the playoffs because they'll be in a playing game. So it's not necessarily the greatest thing for them. They, they definitely got a shot, I think, against a a very confusing Boston Celtics uh, team uh, in that, that playing talk with Mike Pat. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, I agree with you. It'd be and it's it's sad for um, it, you know Charlotte's star player who was traded to Boston is going to be home for the holidays, so to speak. Um, talk with Mike Patton here on the Bachelor News Radio Show. Um, when you look at, uh, and I've asked you this before, the the East and the West in terms of the teams that have, you think, the best chance to put it together and, and get it going, who would be the top two teams, not seeding-wise, unless it, that's what you believe, that can get to the NBA Finals, and who would be the sleepers at this point? All right. Well, the top teams that can get to the, the uh, NBA Finals, of course you got to put the uh, Nets in there. The Nets have all the components in there, and it seems like everyone's buying into their roles and what they need to do, including uh, Blake Griffin as well. Um, and, you know, and it seems like you know the biggest thing that nobody talks about is the role players are fitting in their roles in terms of the actual guys that nobody depended on playing, like Claxton coming in off the bench as a big man. You've got uh, Brown coming in off off the bench as well, and Jeff Green's having a great season as the Wiley veteran joining this crew. Um, they definitely have all the pieces to make it to the NBA Finals. Of course, uh, I believe Philly does, but you know, depending upon if they're shooting the ball well. And let's see, those are the two teams I, I, I could put there and be like, okay, cool. These two teams. Uh, and that's it. And those are two teams I believe, okay, they put it together, they can make it happen. However, one team that nobody's talking about or nobody's really given a chance to make it out of the East because they have tried and failed a couple years in a row, Milwaukee Bucks. I think the Milwaukee Bucks have the components this season to actually win the Eastern Conference and get it going and win the NBA and go to the NBA Finals. Now, do I think they can win the NBA Finals? That's another story. But they do have the pieces. They they got a Bobby Portis for cheap from the New York Knicks this offseason. They got a Drew Holiday, who's way better than Eric uh, Bledsoe when it comes to playoff performance. 
and Chris Middleton is being Chris Middleton. And if they are able to, uh, and Candace Parker pointed this out, if they're able to put uh, Greek Freak on the on the block in the post and let him perform out of there and perform efficiently like he has a few games this season, then that makes the, the Milwaukee Bucks a lot much better, a lot better, I'm sorry, because, you know, usually in the playoffs what they do is give him the ball at the top of the key and he just tries to barrel down and break through four or five different people to get the basket and it doesn't work out. You put him in different spots where he can facilitate out of and make things happen, opens up the entire court for the Milwaukee Bucks. So those are the three teams. And my sleeper, as always, Miami. You can't count out Miami. They're trying to get, they're getting it going at the right time. And with Jimmy Butler and his will to win, you can never count that man out. Mm, and they sit at um, five uh, right now, it's, it, and that can change. Um, but, you know, out west, what do you think? Uh, because Utah, to me, I know what you said about Milwaukee. <clears throat> Utah is my Milwaukee. I, I just, I don't, they're unproven. They, they've had success, but you saw what happened with them in Denver last year. Um, the Clippers, again, I have I have not a lot of faith in them until they, they proved me wrong with that roster on paper. Um, and Phoenix, listen, Phoenix to me can do, can go deep. And two words, Chris Paul, anywhere he goes, these teams are doing well. See what he did uh, in, in his last stop. Now he's with Phoenix, and, and look what they're doing. You know, second-best record in, in the West. So, so assess the Western Conference. Well, definitely with Utah, um, you know, there is cause for concern. You know, the big, biggest cause for concern is that Donovan Mitchell's been out for such a long time with his ankle injury. However, he's supposed to come back to the playoffs. You know, you have uh, Mike Conley's been sitting out a little bit as well with a different assortment of injuries, too. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how they were able to piece it all back together and, you know, make a run in the playoffs. And one thing I don't like about Utah is they shoot the three better than any team in the NBA. That's a good thing in the regular season, but my, my dad always told me, you live by the jumper, you die by the jumper. So if you live by that jumper so long and you don't know how to do anything else, then it might be a problem. So that's what kind of, like, has me iffy about them. Um, you know, Phoenix, you know, for as much as Chris Paul has done in the regular season, in the postseason, you got to remember that Chris Paul has never made a conference finals. He had, or has that's he true. made a conference finals? Yeah, is he, yeah, he's made a – or either he made a conference finals or he hasn't made a conference finals, one or two. Anyway, he, he, you know, I don't necessarily – something always happens, unfortunately, when it comes to him. So that's why or his like, mm, team. I don't know. Or his team. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah. that's why I'm just like, yeah, I don't know about picking Phoenix. And then plus, you know, they have a lot of youngsters on that team that it would be their first case of the playoffs. So that would be, you know, I, I don't know if I can take them there. But one thing I will say is uh, you can't not count out the defending champions. You cannot count out the defending champions. That's now, what I'm I know. Listen, if AD is healthy, more so, mm-hmm. right, I was going to say, if AD is healthy, to me, in my opinion, more so than LeBron, certainly you want him, then they're <clears> as good as anybody. Like, they can get to the finals and repeat. I, 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 I'm I, with you on that, 100%. I'll, I'll, I'll disagree 
But I'll say that I'll say that Anthony Davis is healthy. But the thing is, with the reason why you need LeBron and you need a guy named Dennis Schroeder, is because those guys are your playmakers in terms of uh, you know making things happen for themselves and others. Uh, the more playmakers they have on the court, the more guys that can control the game, the tougher the Lakers are. And with, uh, that, that's one guy that nobody talks about is Dennis Schroeder. He's been out with the health and safety protocols as well during this time, and nobody's talking about him. And he's the he's probably the third best player on that team. So you know you got and, him and, and LeBron coming back. Right, exactly. He's a he's a he's a Rajon Rondo that can play defense and score. That's right. They can score. That's right. I would say Rondo can play defense, but but he can score definitely better. So that's my that's my thing. I think the Lakers definitely have a great shot to potentially you know shock the world. I should say come from the playoff playing game to the NBA Finals potentially. And I, it sucks for Phoenix that they got to play them. Real quick, uh, two quick ones. Um, you know, I forgot about Memphis being over 500 as well. And, and that, uh, do they beat San Antonio? Uh, yes, they beat San Antonio. I'm just not sure San Antonio has enough. They have talented players, but they just don't have that hit guy. Yeah, I mean, they're well coached, but, you know, what are you going to do? Sometimes coaching isn't enough, but just to be in that position is is good. I, I, I want to – final thing I want to ask you about uh, before I get to my next guest, and, and that is Tim Tebow looking like uh, being offered <laughs> a chance to, to sign and play with his home team of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, this is the same Tim Tebow that Neil and Bray – uh, while the national anthem was going on, the same Tim Tebow who hasn't played in eight years in the NFL uh, as a quarterback, the same Tim Tebow that's going to come to this roster as a tight end. Meanwhile, you got Colin Kaepernick, who kneeled for the right reason, who was ostracized and, and banned from the league, who actually played the quarterback at a high level, who actually went to the Super Bowl as a quarterback, can't slip the NFL. Your thoughts? Well, the thing is with this one is, uh, you know, you got Tim Tebow coming to a team that has no tight ends that can't really, you know, doesn't really going to help, not really going to help that position. Um, secondly, um, you've got him coming back to Jacksonville, which for those that don't know, he's from that area. So Jacksonville, this is a thing to sell tickets. That's all I can see this for is a thing to sell tickets. For a team that has poor attendance already, I mean, that's the only thing I can think this could be. Other than that, I, I, I can't call it as to why you would bring him in as a tight end. It just makes no sense. Yeah, he he won't be on, on the team long. If he does, it's because of what you said. He's a hometown boy, um, and Jacksonville needs as much as they can. You know, it's always sure. about the dollar with the owners. So this is the minority owner, but it's all about the, the, the dollars for them. Um, but at the end of the day, like I said, you have one guy who played quarterback who stunk. All right, he beat the Steelers on a, on a women of prayer with Denver one time, but everybody could be lucky one time. But Colin, Kaepernick, Colin Kaepernick got to a Super Bowl. Um, so, and again, criminal justice reform, police brutality, uh, racism, so on and so forth is what he was kneeling for. Um, and you can see the hypocrisy of the NFL and of, of, of people in this country. It's okay for Tim Tebow to come back to the league. He's a scrub. I'm calling him it. 
and Colin was balling out, and he can't sniff an analyst job or anything with the NFL. It's, it's really sad, but not surprising. Um, Mike, before you go, let people know uh, how to reach out to you, sir. You do uh, great work, as always. I know you're on the air tonight, uh, but let people know how they can follow you and reach you, sir. Well, you can find me on Twitter at MikePat82, which is where my show, Touring the AFC South, will be tonight. We're talking, uh, oh, the name of the show tonight is Hall of Fame Dreams Edition. We're going to talk a little T-Bow, a little Eric Fisher going to the Indianapolis Colts. And also we're going to talk about eight players from four different teams in the AFC South and if they are Hall of Fame worthy or not. So we're going to talk about that tonight. That will be at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 8 p.m. Central for all those in the Southeast. And Midwest and the South, uh, the Midwest. Okay, there we go. We're going to leave it that way. Anyway, um, and also you can, of course, find me at the Tennessee Tribune, National Voice, and other different outlets as well. Mike, as always, man, your insight is always needed and wanted here on this. Man, we'll do it next week. Be blessed and be careful. I'll talk to you then, sir. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Always, always good to have Mike Patton on, uh, giving the knowledge. He keeps it real, very blunt, don't place his favorites. It, it is what it is. This is, by the way, uh, the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM in Chapel Hill as well, uh, and IBM TV. And you can uh, listen to the rebroadcast at the Bachelor News Radio Network. <laughs> My sinuses feel like they're going to explode. Sudafed, aisle five. My allergies have my sinuses all stuffed up. Sudafed, aisle five. Tell the man what's wrong. My sinuses. Sudafed, aisle five. Sinus misery? Get Sudafed. Nothing stronger at relieving even your worst sinus symptoms. Not even a prescription. This could just... Sudafed, aisle five. Sudafed, prescription strength sinus relief. Based on 24-hour dose of pseudoephedrine.
where. I'm going to bring in my next guest, and, you know, if you didn't know, uh, May is Mental Illness Month, and um, one of the concerns and discussions I've had on uh, another broadcast uh, with uh, this guest coming on um, is the trauma uh, that goes on with our people in our communities um, that leads to a lot of different issues, whether we're kids or even adults. Um, but I, it's, I'm, I'm happy to bring in, uh, I guess, Scenario O'Conjure, and she is a psychotherapist and founder of the Oklahoma Clinicians um, of Color in Oklahoma City. Uh, Oklahoma. And first of all, I thank you for coming on for the first time, and I'm glad to have you uh, on the show. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me, and it's a real pleasure to be on the show. Absolutely. So I want to uh, touch on one area we were talking about on the air before, and that was uh, the fact that when you look in black community, we certainly don't want to say all police are bad police, but those bad apples that commit these heinous crimes and murders, I call them, uh, is very traumatic. It's very traumatic for our kids, very traumatic mm-hmm. for our families, and they're long-lasting issues and ramifications that, that go into that. Um, when you look at this. So talk about what happens or what should happen when starting with kids, when they either witness it or are looking at their, their parents, because, you know, kids are very, they're like sponges. They're going to, they're going to look and they're going to learn from adults and people, adults and parents around them. So right. what is the the trauma that goes into seeing someone killed or hearing about someone killed of color based on the color of their skin? Okay. I mean, that is a very broad question. And depending on the age group, <laughs> I'm going to start with, um, depending on the age group, I'm going to start with young children and how they interpret it as a parent or a caregiver you know, being able to talk and communicate with that child to kind of get a sense or an idea of what they know, what they've heard is a first step because, you know, as kids they may um, have saw something or heard something or had someone tell them something that may not necessarily be true. So by you being the adult and at least assessing where they're at in terms of maturity, uh, age level, you know, things of that nature there really helps to uh, kickstart the conversation. So be able, being able to identify what they see and, you know, counteract any type of uh, misinformation received kind of helps. It really does. Um, also, and this is helpful for not just a child but an adult too, you know, identify the feelings you're having as you're watching 
something like a, a police killing take place. You know, being able to realize that, okay, I'm feeling a certain kind of way. I'm not wrong for feeling that way, but um, if this is causing me issues, then I need to be able to address it. Some people take mental health days, and I think that a lot of us are, are moving or gravitating towards realizing the importance of mental health days when we as a community have kind of seen such tragedies play out, court dates, uh, hearings, you know, shootings that are broadcasted every day, you know, 24-7. Part of that health care or self-care, rather, means turning off the news when it becomes too much or the radio or the Internet, whatever it may be as a source of media, being able to realize that this is too much for me, okay? This is too much, and I'm having an emotional reaction. Now, to be able to define what an emotional reaction is, you need to really be able to assess how you're looking, how this is affecting your daily functioning. Are you finding yourself being, you know, angry at the, all the time? Are you finding yourself being uh, weepy-eyed or crying all the time? Maybe you feel like, you know, there's no justice and there's no, no reason to continue to keep going. Or maybe it's anger of, of the injustices that you've seen. Being able to identify those are actually the first step in finding a healthy way to cope, okay? By doing that, you know, being able to find like-minded people such as yourself to vent to um, helps you because, you know, we work in a multicultural world, meaning that you're not just working, or maybe, maybe you are, but you're not working around all the same ethnicity or the same race. So being able to, to have those conversations vent realize that not everyone falls under the same guise just because you've seen one group of people or person act this way doesn't mean that all officers or all white people are uh, fall under that same guise. I mean, be able to think about the people that you know in your life who have shown you different and not try to generalize, um, you know, based off your emotions, if that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, so just to follow up, what is a mental illness, I mean, a, a mental day, if you will, a mental day, it, it kind of elaborated on that. And then when you, when you, if you're socially conscious, not only socially conscious, but uh, you're active, an activist, let's say. So because you're an activist, whether you're watching it on TV or on Facebook or wherever you're watching it, you're in tune to it. So how do you tune that, turn that down and still be yourself in your activism uh, and, and keep your sanity? Sure. I'll start with your first question. A mental health day is something that um, is very similar to a sick day. You know, people, when they're not feeling well uh, physically, they take off. Well, what we're trying to do now is, place physical health in the same category, the same important category as a mental health. So a mental health day is just like a sick day. And you're, you're like, this is something that is federally regulated. So you cannot get fired because you take a mental health day. In fact, it's, it's encouraged, especially when you're witnessing or you're experiencing, uh, whether that be bereavement or, you know, an incident take place, or maybe you're overworked and you're tired and you just need a break. That's what we call a mental health day. It falls under the category of a sick day. 
Um, and, you know, I recommend using those as, as long as you have that time to use. Uh, some organizations or some jobs actually, uh, even if you run out, find a way to substitute that. But if you have a question about that, talk to your uh, human resource person who can kind of advise you in the way of uh, going about that. But, yes, mental health days are just as important as a physical sick day. Um, I usually tell my clients you cannot pour from an empty mug. So when you find yourself feeling depleted or overly anxious or even angry, take a mental health day. Um, Your body and your mind will thank you, as well as your job maybe even. Um, So that's the one question on that. And the second question um, can you repeat that again? Well, I was just saying that, you know, if you're an activist, you're in tune. It's just like, it's almost like your job. Like you're, you know, it's Black Lives Matter, so you're in it every day. You're emailing, mm-hmm. you're looking at the holistic things that are going on, you're watching them on TV. How do you tone that down and still keep your, um, yourself as an activist? Hmm. You know, it's a very tough job to have um, because, again, you're kind of thrust and you're passionate about activism, and that's the reason why you're engaged, right? But even as an activist, you should be mindful and aware of how you're feeling, what's going on with your body. Are you noticing that you're tense all the time? Are you noticing that you're crying all the time? Are you noticing that the people that don't look like you, you're starting to have negative thoughts or emotions about. When it happens that way, it'd be no different than any other person, and self-included. Um, find ways in a healthy way to vent. You know, some people, uh, for me personally, I enjoy nature. Some people enjoy, you know, art or talking to someone else. That's another thing, to find people that are like-minded like you who have perhaps even a support group that you can discuss your issue, use it as a venting process, and then leave those emotions at the door. Being able to leave those emotions at the door and work on what you need to do and focus on. But you can't do that if you're emotionally upset, if you're noticing that you are, your vigilance has increased, or you're having uh, sleeping issues, or you find yourself, um, you know, depressed or anxious all the time, if you're finding yourself using drugs or alcohol, these are signs and symptoms that your mental health is taking a decline and that you should do something about it. And if if all things, if you don't have that, then, you know, I encourage therapy. You know, some people turn to religion. It's a healthy, positive outlet to utilize that, is, yeah, that should be practiced. And some people would say, you know, uh, you know, if you're a licensed psychotherapist, but if you have a therapist, but maybe you have the inside uh, of school, you know what I mean? It's almost like it, if you're in a position to be able to understand those symptoms, right? So oh, I'm sorry, have, L.A., do you mind repeating that again? Because your phone was breaking up, so I couldn't hear clearly. I, I, I was saying that some people would say that, um, L.A., I can barely hear you again. It sounds like you're in a tunnel. Okay. One second. We're going to go ahead and switch over here. 
Okay, just want to make sure you can hear me better there. I can. I can. That is so much better. Thank you. Okay, no worries. Um, We were having some echoes in the background, so I switched uh, gears. Um, Technical stuff, of course, happens. Um, I was saying that some people would say because you're a therapist that you – only you know the signs, but, you know, it's maybe – an advocate may be easier for you to go to a, your own therapist or your own friend to, to vent and do those things as opposed to somebody not in the field or understanding or knowing the signs um, mm-hmm. in terms of depression and anything else that would be traumatic that will lead mm-hmm. to some forms of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Right. Um and for that, I would say that you don't have to be a therapist to realize that your body is going through changes, right? Your feelings are going are going through changes. You know, if you have someone that's close to you, maybe they know a close person, they can see what's going on. I think that we're all capable of realizing that something is wrong. I don't like feeling this way. You know, um, if it's going on for a month now, you know, noticing those changes or having someone bring that up to you is really important in terms of uh, making sure that you take care of your mental health. Again, um, I know in in the black community, uh, the subject of mental health is really difficult to approach because uh, for so many reasons, um, we don't seek therapists. Maybe it's because you don't have them in your neighborhood. Maybe because you feel like the cost of therapy may be too high. Maybe because it's a strong mistrust about it. However, in order for an out, and this is, you know, a, a thought of mine and something that's echoed, in order for us as a race, as a community, as a, as a uh, group, in order to make sure that we are heard and acknowledged and felt we have to start we have to start individually with ourselves. We have to start there and then continue the conversation. Um, we spend so much time talking about physical health that you cannot have one without the other. If your mental health is in decline, then guess what's gonna happen next? Your physical health is in decline. So being able to have those conversations and become aware even even if you're faced with challenges, being able to acknowledge, research, and read on these things uh, helps um, to, to broaden your horizons on what you can do. So, again, it's a tiring task. Being a, an advocate is a tiring job. You have to, and I encourage you to be able to realize, hey, I need to take a break, or what is going on with me differently that is affecting the work I do. You can always tell when there's a mental health issue because your level of functioning, your daily, daily, day-to-day functioning changes. It shifts where you may have been a happy, jolly person uh, at one minute. Something may have happened that triggered you, that led to the opposite of that. Now you're sad for days and days on end. If you know that's not like you typically, that's a sign of mental health decline. Once we can get to the point where we're saying that my mental health is just as important as my physical health, then we can move on on those greater subject matters that matter to us on a state level, community level, nationally. Um, but we can't do that if we are personally in a state of uh, disarray and not understanding what's going on with our mental health. 
you, you're so right about that. I, I get emails and texts from people about, did you see this or did you hear this? And it was either something, police brutality, something political, because we mm-hmm. touch, touch on everything. And I, I got to turn it off. Like, I can't, I can't do it all the time. I don't want to yeah. be on, you know, uh, go too personal. But, I mean, it just, it's really, you're right. You have to turn some of this negativity stuff off in order mm-hmm. to be able to, to be able to come back and be refreshed because you will get burnt out. If you just joining yeah. us, we're talking with them. We're talking with Tanaria O'Conjure. Of course, she is a licensed psychotherapist and founder of the Oklahoma uh, Clinicians of Color in Oklahoma City. We're going to get to what they do um, on, a, on a regular basis. And I really appreciate uh, what you guys uh, do I want to ask you about okay. as you relate to you're welcome. I, I want to ask you about as it relates to police brutality or criminal justice. I don't like to ca- call it. I should say criminal injustice reform uh, okay. and racism and things of that nature. Things that affect uh, black and brown communities. Does trust Remember the Tuskegee experiment? You know, some of us don't want to take the COVID, you know, get the vaccine. Does Uh play into the fact that we can't have the serenity? We can't be mentally stable because we're so concerned about getting burned or getting killed in some cases. Does trust play into our mental stress? when it comes to those mm-hmm. factors and those those issues? Trust definitely plays a role. Um, African-Americans have for centuries uh, dealt with mistrust of, uh, of whites, uh, maybe even mistrust of each other in regards to um, freedoms, uh, um, support, things of that nature there. So that has kind of been passed on generationally, and I'm not making this up. You know, research shows that when trauma of a a profound effect takes place, that becomes embedded in your DNA, and it passes down. So that that mistrust, uh, feelings of, uh, you know, I can't uh, trust that particular person, so therefore I'm not going to, to deal with them, is realistic. It's not just realistic, but we have facts behind it. There's been experiments, the Tuskegee experiments that have gone on um, that aids our mistrust. There's been providers that we've had to work with who are not culturally competent, uh, who have mislabeled and given wrong diagnosis or maybe just even disregard. Um, That has gone on for centuries. And as a medical uh, field, you know, they really need to to do a better job with that. Um, There's reasons for the mistrust. There are reasons for that, and they are very, very valid. I would never say to a person, well, you know, that's not true. Um, You have that right. But at the same time, I encourage my clients to, okay, now we know this has happened. How can we uh, move forward? What can we do? Because, again, our health is more pressing and important. We have to get to a level in which there is someone that we can trust or some people that we can go to. 
So, again, I encourage um, venting, um, maybe social groups that help you to process your anger. Some people use the church as a source of, uh, you know, venting or prayer, and that's all that's very great and very important to do. Um, In the past, there's kind of been, speaking on religion a little bit, there's kind of been a divide between the church and therapy. Um, I'm happy to report that even that is now changing in which the pastors and religious leaders are seeing that, you know, mental health is still valid and there's things that I'm not equipped necessarily or maybe even um, the Bible doesn't speak clearly on that our clients, I mean not our clients, but our parishioners can be better off with a therapist. So some churches have even adapted having a therapist on board in the church, a Christian therapist or whatever religion, uh, to help navigate that, um, which is great, which is great. I lost my train of thought, by the way. <laughs> so That's okay. I, I, I do want to ask you what your organization is uh, doing um, in terms of convincing our people, because you know, it's it's not it's not one of those things where we want to discuss. I mean, we're so conditioned about in a way where if you have any vice, any negative vice in your your life, just stop doing. It. Stop drinking. Stop smoking. Stop mm-hmm. whatever you're doing. Just stop it. We're black. Yeah. We handle everything. Yeah. We're tough. We've been we've been conditioned to be tough since the Middle Passage, right? So, yeah. what can we do to to have those conversations? We don't even have the conversations of race. That's a whole other subject. But what can we do? Because, like you said, if you're depressed, do you really want to get up and exercise? How are you going to be physical if you're depressed? So, right. but but we don't want to talk about it. It's like it's just right. a shameful thing. How do we fix mm-hmm. that? We fix that by normalizing it. That means being able to have conversations with the people that we are in close contact with, starting with your family. We we have to realize that, uh, and this is not necessarily just an opinion, but the truth is that um, black people are 20% more likely to experience serious mental health issues, such as anxiety or depression disorder. Um, we have generationally been labeled as strong and, you know, you're powerful and and great. Yes, we are, but at the same time, we are human. And I think once you humanize uh, mental health and realize that stigma plays a big role in us not seeking mental health treatment because we tell ourselves that we're we're strong and don't cry or you're not a man if you – do this or you seek therapy, you know, if we learn how to get rid of those negative thinking patterns, because they are, it's nothing wrong with saying that I need help. You know, again, if we've been traumatic or traumatized throughout our, for centuries now, realizing that there is no particular prayer that will get that away. You need treatment. If you want to advance then treatment in the form of whether it be talk therapy or even with some medications that are out there to help is important. Again, normalizing the importance of mental health, just like we do physical health, is key to that. 
And that's some of the things that um, my initiative, Oklahoma Clinicians of Color, does on a regular basis. I came up with the idea uh, back in 2018 because I couldn't find, even though there was people who were asking, um, you know, I'm black and I, I, I'm looking for a therapist that looks like me, I could not find any therapist like me. I knew they existed, but I collectively, where are they? So I started the group initially just to be able to identify black therapists. So as a client, if you were in need, being able to connect the individual with a therapist that looks like them. Because what we do know from research is that um, shared experience, uh, being able to have someone that looks like you helps tremendously in a therapeutic process. It helps a person to feel like I can connect with you because you understand me and therefore I can talk. Um, one good thing about today's time is I believe that we're more open to the idea of therapy. Um, you know, you see movie stars and um, music stars talk about their experiences and how therapy has helped them. Maybe some medications have helped them. And that has kind of lowered our um, our stigma about it because, again, it's normalized. So you want to start that conversation at home if it's possible, and it helps being educated on the subject of mental health. Talk about it. With Jay-Z, spoke about his uh, anxiety or, dis, uh, or depression. What does anxiety disorder look like? What does depression look like? You know, and am I experiencing that? Am I having the same symptoms? Am I sad, unusually sad all the time? Am I crying all the time? Am I nervous to the point that, you know, I'm sweating in my shoes if I have to talk? You know, and has this been lasting a long time? I think once we get over the idea again that we are crazy or that you are less than a person or weak because you choose to turn towards therapy or another guys to help you, um, then we will be able to normalize it. But as a black community, our biggest hurdle is stigma. Again, no one want, people look at mental illness and they think about it as this is the, the nut or the crazy person who yells at the top of their lungs or, you know, and wow hair and, and, you know, has to be hospitalized. You know, those images used to be broadcasted on TV, and we're really working to try to, to eliminate that because mental illness in itself has a range. It has a variety. You know, there's functional people that struggle with mental illness. Uh, there's a spectrum of mental illness in itself where it ranges from, you know, mental wellness, having a great day, to mental illness, where you're, you're finding yourself struggling with having a good day or being motivated to get up every day. That's important. Well, That's important you, because it gave you – go ahead. I'm sorry. You, you, you said a, a, a mouthful of, of things there. Um, <laughs> you know, number one, you, you know, the this this – sense of shame that we put upon ourselves and our family. I have uh, people who suffer with um, some issues and they're on on meds and I know family members that, you know, belittle that situation. And, and mm. it, it sounds like it's more of the, the education of those who 
Yeah. Aim not to have those mental illnesses um, to, to get them to understand that, you know, people go through things. Uh, the mm-hmm. other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, you, you're right. I, I mentioned on the other broadcast we were on is that, you know, as a father, you know, and uh, uh, everything is sort of uh, taught, if you will. And so we're taught yeah. to be strong. And, you know, I go to the extreme of, uh, you know, telling my sons that they can't cry. But, you know, they they understand that, you know, it's a responsibility as a man in terms of the position in the, the home. And there's some sense of toughness mm-hmm. there. Um, so yeah. I struggle as a parent full disclosure, making sure I'm saying the right thing. Maybe not mental yeah. illness, but just making sure I'm saying the right thing so they could be who they are. Because mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, uh, scenario, it seems like that's really where it is. That's where it starts. Like if we allow ourselves, our families to be who they are, then maybe the stigmas would somewhat go away along with the education of, of mental illness. Correct. Correct. You start at home, then you can, again, do, you can go on to better things. But if you do not take care of your mental health first, then you cannot take care of your physical health, which means you can't go out and advocate uh, our work even, our being relationships. Again, it's really important because as kids, we internalize messages that our parents give us. So, therefore, we internalize uh, things that we hear about mental wellness or even mental illness. If you're telling your kid, you know, well, big boys don't cry and you're a strong woman, you know, uh, imagine what they grow up believing. And then once they realize or something happens and they're not able to process because they, they haven't been taught emotional intelligence or emotional wellness, then we have mental health crisis. What, what do you do when you're told, don't you cry? You know, you're less than a man if you cry. You're, you're crazy. It's, it's the taboo of mental health and mental illness in the black community is structured around shame and embarrassment. And, again, I, I say that until we take care of our mental health, we are not equipped emotionally, psychologically, to take on the societal ills that we have as a community. Yeah, and the, the thing is, too, you know, you hear people saying, you know, you know, pray it away and things of that nature. And, and I would gather that if someone um, struggles or is, you know, they identify in their sexuality and that's being shamed, then that leads mm-hmm. to depression and maybe even you would know suicidal and, and things yeah. of that nature, which, yeah, which sure. if you, if you want to harm yourself, that takes on, you know, a, a, a whole different mindset. For sure. For um, sure. Let, let me, let me ask you this. Cause I want, I got someone that sent an email um, and I'll ask you the question. I think it's a really good question. What do you say to your colleagues who are European, if you will, or just, you know, Caucasian in, in itself that it says that it's racist for you to have this, your organization to identify with people that look like you and sound like you and had the same 
experiences culturally. Hello? Yep, Hello? I think it's racist. Can you hear me? Okay, there we go. We had lost uh, contact. Okay. It went completely blank. But I, I, don't I believe... Know. I believe I heard a summary of what you said. What I, what, what I would tell my colleagues are someone who commented that Oklahoma clinicians of color, uh, because we focus on minority mental health, is, is racist. Or even, and even focus in on the fact that people want to identify, you, you, you identify with black people because you're black or vice versa in terms of, you know, because you look like us so I can treat you better because I look like you. I have the same or similar experiences culturally. Yeah, that is a a huge reason why some people seek out therapists of color, therapists that look like them, because there's a compatibility factor. Um, However, you know, our roads are totally different. You know, just if you took a path or you grew up in a different way of life than mine, it doesn't necessarily mean that I understand everything. As therapists, we work off the guise of empathy as well as research and study and practice. So we're not basing, and in being able to relate this to a client is important, but we don't base our uh, therapy, our services, based off of what you look like and because we have a connection. It makes the role easier to do because we have that connection. But, again, being able to help the person identify and hone in on what it is that they need from therapy, what they would like to work on within themselves is key. And for anyone, if any non-minority had that issue, then I'd love to talk to them. Again, uh, black Americans are 20% less likely to receive the type of mental health care that they need. Uh, They are knowledgeable perhaps of where to get it, um, perhaps unknowledgeable of where or um, how to access it. Um, We were just talking about teens, but our suicide rate amongst teens has increased because they feel like they don't have an outlet to talk or or, or are misunderstood or maybe even told uh, that they should not talk about it. Um, And that bleeds over in a lot of other ways. And even with the LGBT, there's a lot of intersexuality that goes on between black people, whether it be black people in class, black people in uh, politics, black people in sexuality. You know, we, we compass a lot, so therefore we have our own set of mental health issues that need to be addressed. Um, even if you are not a black therapist, being able to be culturally aware, cultural competency helps you to relate to a, a black client or a client of color. Um, so we're educational in that sense, too. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Sonaria O'Conjure. Of course, she is the uh, licensed psychotherapist and founder of the Oklahoma Clinicians of Color in Oklahoma City. Here on the Bastion News Radio Show on the Bastion News Radio Network and WCOM uh, and IBM. Um you touched on where I wanted to go. And, you know, African-Americans, black Americans have, have made 
so many heroic and uh, historical firsts and 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 strides to make this country better. You can go on George Washington Carver, Dorothy Hyde, and all the civil rights uh, folks, the Marcus Garvey's, all these people um, that have uh, paved the way. Uh, who fought for social, racial, and economical mm-hmm. injustice. Um, and we continue to do that. Yeah. But the fight for mental illness justice, if you will, or fighting to have those those avenues, uh, those uh, resources, seems to be lacking. And again, it, to me, it goes back to the awareness part, the fact that it's where we are in a stigma. Uh, but we suffer, like you said, from anxiety and depression, two big ones there. Uh, and we're traumatized by the things that we go through just in our communities. So mm-hmm. what if, if your organization um, you're doing and some of the things we could do uh, both from a community standpoint and individual standpoint in terms of, uh, of making the social justice or the mental justice, I I call it, uh, to make sure that we have mental awareness, mental illness awareness, and the resources to help. Because like you said, the numbers in our communities are enormously more high, if you will, Mm -hmm. than the the other communities. So what can we do? What is your organization doing to to push, put pressure on Congress and put pressure in these these cities and states and municipalities to make sure that we have those resources, those avenues uh, to to get some help with our mental um, illnesses. Yeah, that's a great question, L.A. Um, yeah, it's a big heal because uh, funding is not uh, readily available for mental health, mental illness. It really is one of the first things is taken from government um, when when they need money, you know, and it's another reason why the call to defund the police is, is growing um, because of the fact that usually the government gives a lot of money to the police departments and things of that nature there. Well, if things were evenly distributed, then that money could go into mental health care and medical care. Uh, which, you know, these are entities that affect our communities. So um, being able to advocate for the importance of that with our governor leaders is something that is really important and pressing to me and is something that I uh, have aligned myself with several groups, uh, NAMI being one of those, a National Alliance of Mental Illness, um, in which I'm a board member, uh, to advocate on behalf of the importance of receiving mental health treatment for those who need it. And, again, mental health encompasses, uh, you know, just having a bad day, you know, bad thoughts for a prolonged period to people with severe persistent mental illness, such as schizophrenia or bipolar, you know, things of that nature there. So there's a gambit in between that. All of it still requires the need for funding. And, unfortunately, within our society, um, again, like I mentioned, those are the first to go because they do not see, unfortunately, a stigma continues to surround where we think as a nation, as a society, 
that, you know, it's mental illness, you can, you know, just walk it off, pray it off. Uh, it's not important, and that's farthest from the truth. You know, one of the things uh, that is historic with our trauma, if you will, is in our community is being disadvantaged is that, uh, or, or leading to these mental illnesses I mean, you talked about it historically, enslavement, oppression, colonialism, mm-hmm. I mean, racism. Yes. yes. But talk about the fact that, and I'm sure you see with some of your, your patients that uh, just everyday life, uh, even if it's a, um, a short term, I, I like to call it uh, trauma, uh, leads to a lot of the the issues that can build and and, and be very traumatic and very fatal in some cases. I mean, if you lose your job or if you lose your house, you're homeless, you're jobless, you know, a death in a family. Um, death in a family, uh, obviously, uh, being more significant, but losing your job and losing your home or or any of those type of things all seem to lead to um, the issues that you're talking about. So it's not always just um, the stuff on brutality and stuff, it could be something as, like I said, and some people handle losing their job or their home in the worst kind of ways, shooting somebody mm-hmm. or killing themselves. So talk about those right. those everyday things that, that life just kind of happens and it can lead to some, some really severe uh, issues. Yeah, it's true, true. There's a lot of things that happen. Life is hard. <laughs> You know, and we deal with the sets of challenges every day uh, that we are blessed to see life. Um, But again, mental wellness involves being aware of how to cope with those traumas, those events that take that take place in our everyday life. Um, Which is another reason why I strongly push for therapy because it teaches us those valuable skills to cope with the traumatic things, uh, even less than traumatic, or, you know, things that cause anxiety, such as public speaking. It helps us to cope with that. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things. Again, it starts with your acknowledgement of what has happened and how your body is responding to it. You know, I tense up when I'm dealing with perhaps uh, an, an incident at work. Um, in which I I am not sure of myself, right? So I'm noticing that I'm having some anxiety about the idea and the thought of this upcoming project or something that I have to work on. Um, I'm noticing that this isn't the first time that I've had it. I kind of have a history of doing this. I'm aware of perhaps maybe some things that I would talk, well, mom also struggled with her anxiety. She was nervous all the time or um, you know, had difficulties coping well or, or whatever, and you turn to drugs or alcohol, you know, to help get rid of the jitters, you know. So, again, being able to pinpoint where we started, how that came to be, and realizing at the end that this has been problematic um, are the first keys. And then the next is being able to normalize perhaps any exaggerations or stigmas uh, in, in pertaining to mental illness and the black community, uh, being able to overcome those fears to realize that your health 
is more of importance. Um, your mental health is more important. And that the fact that everything else seems to follow after that. Um, if you have a decline in your mental health, then most likely you're going to have a decline in your physical health too. As we know, blood pressure tends to rise when we're overly anxious. Um, you know, we have um, poor health conditions when our mental health condition doesn't align with that. So that's kind of the first step. We're going to have issues. We're going to have different things that play out in our life. But how are you coping with that? If you notice that your whole day has kind of been a wash because of one thing that happened or maybe multiple things that happened and you're not necessarily coping with it well. It's a struggle to get out of bed. You know, it's a struggle. You find yourself blowing up or becoming angry all the time because maybe what you're seeing or what you're dealing with, um, you have to make some choices. And one of the things that I encourage my clients is you have, you have the skill set, the power, you have everything that you need in order to be successful, it's just you utilizing those things. So it's it's a fascinating process. It really is. Um, did is I answer a, is, your question? Is that a sign of, yeah, is that a sign of depression? Uh, is depression at the forefront of, of some of the things you just mentioned, the struggle, get out of bed, things making you angry, things making you cry? What, mm-hmm. if, I mean, if you a sign of depression or could it be something that was always there and maybe coming to the surface? Hmm. Yeah, I would go ahead and say that that's definitely a sign of depression. Um, but again, everything has an origin. It doesn't just necessarily start from day one. No, it, there's there's an origin. Um, a lot of things that we've seen or have encountered has been maybe traumatic or stressful. Um, maybe you find yourself as a kid remembering how, how scary it was to, to take that test. You've internalized it now and been thinking that all tests are going to be hard. So, therefore, you're having a physical reaction about it. You're noticing that your, your head's starting to sweat. You feel flush. Your stomach feels jittery. You know, you've internalized tests to be something that is stressful and, and maybe that continuation of thought and about that carries on into your adulthood. And now you notice that every time it comes to perhaps something that you have to perform um, or do or something to prove yourself, you're now struggling with anxiety. Um, that is a problem. That is a problem and it's worthy of talking to your doctor are even a therapist about yeah, for maybe some tips that can uh, help. Uh, yeah, yeah. And two quick questions. Uh, Mark uh, asked if you are becoming codependent on some substance. Say he said if you're studying for college, you know, some college uh, um, test, and you need sort of some kind of upper speed to stay awake, can that lead to something deadly? And then um, Jane had said that um, what about the discrepancy on how uh, mental illness is treated in the black community as opposed to white community? She said white people on drugs go to the Betty Ford Clinic, uh, black people Mm. on drugs go to jail. Mm. Right. 
So I'll start with the first question, and I'll try to remember the information you told me. Uh, The use of drugs in itself doesn't lead to dependency, but I think being aware of the genetic component, meaning that how biologically or even um, genetically it's affected past family members uh, helps us to become aware of how it could possibly, uh, because we have a... um, What's the word I'm trying to use? We have a genetic component uh, that means that we could be or most likely could become addicted to that. Now, drug use in itself is one area. Drug use is saying that I used a drug, but I am capable of still functioning, right? Addiction or dependency occurs when you realize or you find out and you're doing things that are different from your your day-to-day life, that's where dependency becomes a problem because you can no longer function without this drug. And, again, if you have some preexisting conditions such as family who's been dependent or uh, maybe even addictive personality, addictive spirit, meaning that you find yourself uh, throwing yourself into uh, everything you do, you know, say a workaholic or a foodaholic, uh, it's the same thing with alcohol or drug addiction too. So, yeah, be careful of that. A lot of people um, are in denial about their use. No, I can quit any any time. And the truth is, is that um, when when that dependency hits, and it could hit whether it be the first use or even um, you know the 99th use, when it hits. It's hard and extremely difficult to quit that habit, and it usually involves interventions of of such, whether that be drug treatment centers or maybe even medication to help. So the second question uh, involved uh, the differences, yes. The double standards. Yes, the double Mm -hmm. standards, yeah. Yeah, you're totally right on that. You're totally right, and I see that playing out in the opioid addiction or even the war on drugs uh, that really plagued our communities back in the 80s and the 90s and how now the opioids uh, are kind of the new addiction scene and how because, you know, there's a lot of white people that deal with it. There's a lot of more mental health. There's more uh, broadcasting, more spotlight on that medication. Um, Thank goodness there's – a voice behind that. There's people that are voicing out and speaking and advocating like, hey, you guys did this. Uh, where's our, where's our, uh, you know, acknowledgement? Um, President Obama was really good at being able to overturn uh, long-term prison sentence due to marijuana possession. And uh, we need more things like that. Um, instead of placing our people that are addicted or have mental health issues in jail, we need to focus more on recovery. We need to focus more on treatment. So that is definitely a a push. That is definitely something that people see, and uh, it's very discouraging to notice there is a difference. But I encourage that anyone who struggles with uh, addiction do not, you know, fear um, please do get treatment for that. Uh, Orlando asks, which is worse, an enabler or someone who has an addiction who can lead to, to uh, some illness 
or those who shame those with the illness? That's a good question. Yeah, all of it's bad. <laughs> um, the enabler, yeah, all of it's bad, to be honest. The enabler is is definitely a person that um, in families of codependency, um, you know, not necessarily forces the drug on them or forces the negative relationship on a person. But in order to ease um, the distraughtness that takes place when that person doesn't have perhaps a drug, um, they will say, go here, go ahead and use or turn a blind eye to just to to get peace um, in the household. And that's detrimental, too. It really is, and it's not a good form of relationship. Um, what was the second part of of that? The second and third. Nabler and someone who someone who would shame the person if they have some form of illness. Mhm. Yeah, they both are equally uh, bad in my book. Uh, to shame people means you know creates uh, resistance in being honest. And again, there's so many ills that take place uh, from drug use to even suicide that occurs when we're shamed, you know, there's a lack of support there. So that person who shames or the community that shames um, creates a barrier from that person actually getting help. Veronica, but this is, you're getting the question. Now, Veronica um, had asked, um, is a physical therapy, a physical illness or, or issue lead to mental illness? In other words, she said in parentheses, say, a sex addiction. Yes. The answer to that uh, is definitely yes. We've seen, um, let's see here, for example, and I'll use uh, diabetes, you know, for people that have had diabetes or any type of physical health condition, the idea and thought that they're not able to function uh, the way they normally do creates depression Depression in itself uh, creates uh, the, you know, the lead, the need or the idea that they're unable or not worthy, um, and can lead to perhaps even the use of drugs or even committing suicide at the, the larger scale there. But yes, sex addiction is one of those areas where it's, it's very controversial. Uh, some people believe that you know you can't be addicted to sex. Um, I personally fall under that guise that you can. If, if there's something that permeates your everyday being, you cannot live without. It's part of your functioning now. That has become an addiction, whether that be a food. I, I can't function or I can't think. I can't operate without this. Um, that's an addiction. And so, unfortunately, there are some people who are addicted to sex. Um, the underlining uh, issue between addiction is the need, uh, the craving for acceptance, um, if that makes sense. So therefore, yeah. they do this, uh, this act, whether that be food, sex, or drugs, because they have not dealt with the hurt or the anger or the anxiety that underlying an emotion enough. So it kind yeah. of transposes uh, I mean to a bigger area. Right, and they talk about pornography, and you know, I'm no doctor. I play one at the Holiday Inn, but um, mm-hmm. you know, the the fact is, I would think if if uh, 
if you're addicted in that way. And I could see a man thinking, well, you know, again, tough guy. If no, no addiction, sex is not an addiction, whatever, uh, for the most part. But I mean, people being promiscuous can lead to some some serious medical issues, you know, yes. and uh, dangers, yeah. you know, the sexual diseases and transmission diseases. So uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of that. Um, before you go, uh, I did get one last question, so I want you to answer that, and then I want you to really uh, uh, talk more about your organization. We'll have you on again. Um, the question is signs. What are some of the signs that people who really care about those who may have either a dependency or an illness, what are some of the signs they should look like? And, uh, and I know that's a broad question, but you know, in our community, it's anxiety, it's depression, it's, it's some of those other bipolar disease. You know, Alzheimer's is something that deteriorates, but, you know, but what are some of the signs that people can look for in our communities in, um, in terms of helping if they know those, those signs? All right. So... I'm going to individualize it and talk about just the the person. If there is a person that you are concerned uh, about in regards to their mental health, then, again, educating yourself before you approach them. But just like you would with anyone, being able to talk in a safe uh, place, you know, a place where it's intimate and you and that person is alone to express that, you know, you have some concerns, um, is important because you, you can't have the talk, and I say it as the talk because it's very important, and mental health in itself is a very difficult t- subject to approach for a lot of people, and especially the black community. So being able to have an intimate setting in which you and that person are alone to discuss um, what you've noticed. Now, some of the signs to, to keep aware for uh, aware about that maybe have caught your eye is social withdrawal, being able to, you know, withdraw from your interactions that that person usually has with other people. You know, they're not hanging out with their friends anymore. You know, um, they're having difficulties functioning, you know, whether that be at school or at work. You know, they're um, not getting their work done. You know, they're typically known as the person who gives 110%, but now they're giving 30% or maybe not even showing up at all. Um, dramatic changes such as that, you know, they're not eating, they're barely getting any sleep. Um, while it doesn't mean that they have a mental health problem, it could be a sign of what is to come. Again, if you're not sleeping and you're not eating well, then that becomes a phys- physical issue where you're not awake to to do things, to travel or whatever have you. So being able to... Um, be aware of what you're seeing helps kind of guide your conversation when you're having it with them of approaching. Um, And then instead of we have a tendency to use you statements, you aren't doing this or you did that, people quickly become defensive when we're using you. So I encourage the use of I statements. Talk about what you've noticed. Talk about how you feel uh, talk about your thoughts and your concerns, even more importantly, and that gets rid of the shame uh, aspect of it. Okay? Um, I want you to be able to, to 
think also about resources. If you're going to have this important talk with your loved one about, you know, them needing mental health treatment, have resources on hand with you when you have that talk. You know, um, a good recommendation that I usually do is, you know, uh, NAMI.com, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Um, but there are several other resources, some, something that's in your community that the person can go to or a person that they can talk to uh, about this concern, whether that be a therapist or a social support group. And so those before are you go, things. please do, yeah, mm-hmm. talk about your organization again, how people can can contact you and follow you. Uh, and certainly we, we will definitely hopefully be um, – more than uh, many, many more discussions like this to come. Sure, sure, sure. So, again, I'm with the Oklahoma Clinicians of Color. Uh, We are a resource-based group in which we educate the community on the importance of mental, minority mental health and wellness as well as illness. Um, You know, I, I really want our community to be aware and educated of, again, how you approach what is mental illness, um, you know, research and, and data on our, our growth and our struggles and, you know, how we can continue to overcome. Um, it's also a support hub for therapists of color in, in which we, um, you know, share kind of a think tank in which we share ideas and, and uh, resources and referrals Um, So with that knowledge in those individuals, I uh, also connect them with people in the community that are in need of mental health services. And we've been doing that since 2018. So if you would like to get in touch with me. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, 2018. So if you'd like to get in touch with me, um, you can email us at OklahomaCliniciansOfColor at um, gmail.com. Um, even if you're not in the Oklahoma City area and you would like information of perhaps maybe therapists in your area, I can uh, help you to research that information. Um, so, yeah, that's my contact information. Well, 2018, I was going to say, and, and counting in what you're doing. And, um, and listen, this just, I mean, it's, May is Mental Illness Month, but every month should be Mental Illness Month, especially as it relates to our community and the advocacy mm-hmm. of, of that and and the fact that, like I said, we, we've made some strides with what you said in terms of conversations and, and the advocates of, of those um, who are working towards that, but we got a long way to go. Uh, and um, uh, this helped yeah. me. Personally, you know, uh, right. along with others in terms of uh, making sure that I'm conscious enough to, to not just with my kids, but just in, in general in terms of families and people in general to make sure that the understanding and the sensitivity, right, um, uh-huh. is there for us to to understand. But um, so I really appreciate your time this evening. God bless. Uh, We will have you on with this and some other topics because you are very, not only educated in your your profession, well-versed, and certainly um, 
we appreciate your insight and your input. So thank you so much. Enjoy the rest yeah. of your time, and, and we will talk with you very soon. Okay. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you so much. Benaria O'Conjur, she is a licensed psychotherapist and founder of the Oklahoma Clinicians of Color in Oklahoma City. Here on the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We thank her. If you missed any part of any of our broadcasts, any of our interviews, any of the things that we're doing, you can go to our website, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com. Uh, follow us on Pad Nation at Facebook, uh, Pad Nation 2 at Twitter, and, of course, uh, on any other outlets, including IBM TV and WCOM.com.
Bye.